Hello, and welcome to another installment of The Weird Chronicles. Each episode, we bring you tales of action and adventure from Malifaux and the other side. Malifaux is a wild frontier, but the Guild is adept at bringing order to chaos and imposing its will upon the world. Sometimes that means sacrificing the lives of innocent people in order to achieve a greater good. Or so the Guild's administrators believe. I hope you enjoy the Grass Menagerie. The Grass Menagerie by N. A. Wolf. Suri Bryden was born on a muddy rampart, baking beneath a blood-red sun, just as its dying rays sank below the craggy peaks of the Hindu Kush. His mother said it was a good omen, his father a curse. Crimson was his mother's favourite colour, after all, although he had always preferred olive. She was a healer whose soft hands could bring relief to even the most wretched of wounds. His father was a carpenter from the West with rough, calloused skin, well accustomed to the shockwaves of a blunt hammer or a grating hacksaw. Honestly, they could never agree on anything, except that they loved one another deeply. If they were still alive, perhaps they would also agree that their son's service to the people responsible for their own subjugation and misery would have warranted their disgust and disappointment in equal measure. But both of them are long gone now. His father died from an illness which even his mother could not save, and she suffered a worse fate still. In a rarely practiced custom of her people, banned after the Redcoats conquered her country, a wife could throw herself upon a pyre to join her husband on his final journey. Some families forced the widow into it because of beliefs about honour, but it wasn't like that for Suri's mother. She loved her husband until the very end, and she could not imagine living without him. His corpse was to be cremated by the redcoats at a special site so that the contagion from his body would not spread. They caught her sneaking onto his pyre in the dead of night. She was publicly executed and buried away from him as an example to deter others from doing the same, leaving her son alone to fend for himself. Sori became many things, a liar, a hypocrite, and a follower, but not a fool. He knew that when survival was all that mattered, what his parents might have thought didn't matter anymore, or at least it shouldn't have. But if there is anything he learned since his arrival on the other side of the breach, it's that the dead never stay that way for long in Malifaux. He was not just thinking about necromancy. It was something much deeper and more powerful that he could not explain. You don't understand, do you? Listen to the tale about Charles Trevelyan and his grass menagerie. Then you'll see. You'll all see. Is this number 17 Claridge Street? The butler, who opened the heavy oak door, stared back at Captain Bryden with a raised eyebrow. Evidently, he did not expect to address a junior officer knocking at an elite residence in the heart of downtown. The guards were trained to protect, but not to disturb the lives of those for whom their own lives were risked. 
The buildings here, tall brownstones with luxurious stoops and carved marbled banisters, only hinted at the opulence within, reserved exclusively for Malifaux's wealthiest families and the Viceroy's own personal aides. Armed caravans constantly patrolled the streets, even in the dead of night, and there was always enough gas to keep the lamps running once the evening fog settled in. The events surrounding the governor's death had only heightened security. It was almost safe. Please, sir, Bryden said again, as ingratiatingly as he could, although he could feel his stomach churn with every syllable. I'm here to see Mr. Trevelyan for an interview. My name is Captain Sori Bryden, although my name in the Guild Guard Registry is William. He rolled his eyes as the attendant looked at him quizzically. William is easier for my superiors to pronounce. He explained, holding out his invitation. It was received coldly with a white-gloved hand. I'm from Dashiell's division, trained by the sergeant personally. The butler gazed at the seal stamped on the upper right-hand corner. A bundle of fasces with a ram skull impaled at the top. Wordlessly, he waved a hand. You may enter, the butler said coldly. But don't think that I won't shoot you personally if Mr. Trevelyan doesn't recognize you. There have been a lot of impostors seeking more than a few moments of his time as of late. He growled. See if you can find any of them now. A new voice echoed from inside the house. That's enough, that's enough, let him in, Argus. Without complaint, the butler stepped aside and ushered Bryden forward, removing his hand from the mauser strapped to his side. His fingers twitched as though the mere thought of being parted from the trigger for even a second was a grossly unpleasant proposition. Shuffling footsteps and the rapping of a cane on the polished parquet floor greeted the captain's ears. The old man must have been at least 80, and was exactly as Bryden had remembered him. The tweed suit and the red bow tie were just as mismatched as on the day they first met, although this time they weren't covered in someone else's blood. Still, the scars on his cheek hadn't fully healed. He smiled through pearly teeth that were almost too white, before saying, Captain Bryden, please forgive him. Ever since the events surrounding the governor's mishap, there have been several more attempts on my life by friends and enemies alike. You don't become a man of rank without risk. Minister Trevelyan, the captain answered, extending his hand in greeting. Instantly, Argus shifted nervously and drummed his fingers against the soft leather of his holster. A pleasure to see you again, especially under better circumstances than our last meeting. I'm pleased that you came this afternoon, he whispered imperiously. I would have hated for you to miss this interview. A man of your most humble birth would not find another opportunity comparable to what I am offering you. That, I promise. The old man adjusted his dusty spectacles with one hand and dismissed Argus with the other. The butler grumbled and left them. Bryden followed Trevelyan through a dim but lavish hallway decorated with portraits and lit by lilac beeswax candles. Thank you for inviting me into your home. These paintings are lovely, he said, desperately scrambling for something to break the silence. They were painted by one of Malifaux's finest portraitists, a man from Genoa by the name of Niccolo, Trevelyan answered. No one knows quite what happened to him. 
the old man concluded as he proceeded further down the hall. It's quite a shame. I was hoping to commission a piece from him myself. They turned several corners into what seemed to be the heart of the house until, at last, they reached a sitting room lit by dazzling white sunlight. Bryden's heart stopped when he looked out the window to the courtyard beyond. The space was unlike anything the captain had ever seen. The centre of the property was an idyllic atrium with a tinkling fountain and verdant greenery. A huge variety of flora carpeted the ground, and racks of potted plants filled in the free space. The walls formed an elaborate rotunda with lush vines reaching up toward the open skylight in the roof. Minister Trevelyan smiled at the look of shock on Bryden's face. It's quite the collection, isn't it? The former owner of this house had a green thumb. You'd never guess that the Arboretum was there from the outside. It's one of Claridge Street's best-kept secrets, among many. He coughed. How many plants do you care for? The view reminded him of his childhood in the jungles at the steps of the Cush. It must take a great amount of effort. Some of those look rather dangerous. Bryden caught sight of one potted plant with a snapping, venomous head. It crept menacingly across the cobblestones of the Arboretum with feelers so thick that they burst from the bottom of their terracotta prison like cancerous tubers. After a few tense seconds, it ripped the head off an idle daisy growing from the adjacent rack. Without even looking out the window, Trevelyan chuckled and said, Oh, you must be looking at the feet of Thora infestans. You mean the Irish potato blight? Bryden asked incredulously as the plant ate its fill. It crawled back on the rack from whence it came, retracing its feelers from the bottom of the pot and burying its head in the dirt so as to leave nothing but the appearance of an empty container. Trevelyan smiled. Indeed, we've known for years that the magic of Malifaux can change even the most innocuous creatures into vicious beasts. I brought that sample over when the breach first reopened and it changes more and more with each year, continuing to progress to something greater. It is curiosity about this progress that has stayed me from destroying it. He smiled. It's rather carnivorous and eats both vegetarian and meat with little discrimination. Here, blight becomes more than a mold. It has a body and soul, and as you can see, it will consume more than potatoes. Switching tact quickly, he probed. You know your botany well, it seems. Bryden stood up straight. The interview had just begun. My mother was a, a healer. She knew the names of all plants, herbs, mold, and the like. She even knew the names given by... Trevelyan smirked. My people. Bryden shifted uncomfortably. I'm impressed. Perhaps then you and not I should explain why you were invited here. Trevelyan raised his eyebrows. Because I saved your life, the captain said eyes locked on the saffron rug from the three kingdoms which covered the sitting room floor. Precisely, although there is more to it than that. What I want to know is why, Captain. The reason is more important to me than the outcome, and your answer will determine whether or not I am to make you my personal security aid. Trevelyan snapped his fingers, and Argus entered the sitting room with a tray of tea and biscuits. Black tea from Fujian, one of my favourites he said, clapping his hands eagerly. You should drink it. The man who procured it for me wanted quite a sum in compensation. 
he added almost conversationally. Adeo was a thug, said Argus bluntly as he put the tray down. You should have let me shoot him. It would have given me great pleasure to put a slug in him, and you could have kept the tea either way. Trevelyan scowled, and Argus turned his back, leaving them alone without further comment. Your merchant. Bryden took one of the biscuits and bit into the end. He hated ginger snaps, but it seemed prudent to be polite. His hands shook nervously with each bite as he awaited the next question. Yes, I suppose you could call him that. But it's a story for another time, Captain Bryden. Trevelyan locked the tips of his fingers together and stared at the captain through narrowed eyes. Let us begin. Tell me again what you saw that day, exactly as you saw it. I want to know why I'm sitting across from you right now instead of lying on a slab in the care of our dear Dr. McMorning. Nothing compared to a Friday night at Laramie's. The ale was expensive, but brewed with the finest ingredients available in all of Malifaux. And cocktails awaited thirsty guests in tinkling crystal glasses with thin rims of sea-blue sapphire. The serving girls were always pretty, but never coquettish. And the candle-lit red leather booths welcomed the warmest of company. For the elite who could pay the price, there were far more dangerous and seedy places in the border between downtown and the slums to spend a pleasurable Friday evening than this upscale pub universally respected for its scrupulousness. This Friday, however, Laramie's was a war zone. Scattered pieces of a most unpleasant picture, like individual stitches in a deep, festering gash, were immediately noticeable to curious bystanders staring at the premises from the outside, despite the best efforts of the summoned patrolmen to usher them away. The pub windows were shattered. A stagecoach was tipped on its side, its horse lying dead in the street with a bullet between the eyes. Thick black smoke radiated from the inside of the pub. Most shockingly of all, five gunmen aimed pistols at five clearly visible hostages kneeling behind the windows. Captain Bryden surveyed the scene with his men. The ruby eyes of his badge of office, a snarling bronze ram, glinting even in the moonless night. He eyed the approaching civilian witnesses as they swelled the bottleneck of the avenue, its grouted cobblestones slick with a grimy slurry of ash and rain. The captain knew that this would make the front page of the record in the morning, unless he could act quickly and disperse them. A crime scene was turning into a circus. The mob made the captain nervous, and it showed. Dashiell and Quig were nowhere to be found. He had no directions, no advice. He was an outsider who had just been assigned his first formal post after immigrating from the other side. His superiors noted his quick mind, wit, and his past service for Great Britain, and they were eager to give him responsibility. His predecessors in this unit had died protecting downtown against the incursions from the quarantine zone and the sewers, he was told. He would succeed where they had failed, although nothing could prepare him for the decision he would have to make tonight. With a silent gesture, the captain summoned his deputy, who was busy holding back the crowd of onlookers. Tell me our watchers were able to get a visual of the inside, he said. I want to know exactly who these bastards are. The deputy looked down at his shoes. Negative, Captain Bryden. 
They shot down the last two machines and threatened to execute all of the hostages if we launched a third. His fists clenched. Bryden could see the deputy's nails biting into his sweating palms. All of the entrances and windows except the front had been sealed by some form of magic that even our best-sanctioned spellcasters can't remove, and the witch hunters are nowhere to be found. They can throw things from the inside out, but we can't pass through from this side. It looks like we don't have any choice but to go in the front. What about the people they're holding at gunpoint? Patron, sir. The bartender made it outside before the shooting started and was able to identify the people in the windows. They're all regular patrons. A mix of medium-ranking guild officials and white-collar workers unaffiliated with the Enclave. None of them are of import, except for one. An old man named... Captain Bryden interrupted him curtly. Everyone matters. There's to be no talk like that in my command, you understand me? No disrespect, Captain, but one of them is a high-ranking minister and a personal aide to Secretary Matheson, whose absence will be noticed. All I'm saying is that if you have a chance to keep him safe, the others are acceptable losses. You'll be forgiven for killing a couple of civilians, but you'll be executed for letting that one man die. The deputy craned his neck, looking over at the smoking doors. It looks like one of them is coming out now to negotiate. A lone woman stepped forward from Laramie's. Her hair was short and cropped, and she wore a tattered scarf around her neck like a noose. A tattoo of a sickle and lamp marred the pale complexion below her right eye. Her dark leather pants, laden with pockets and pouches, stood out starkly against the chalky skin of her exposed midriff. She held a gangly old man, wearing a tweed suit and a red bow tie by the scruff of the neck in plain sight of the crowd. Who's in charge here? She thundered. Her voice was magically magnified to resonate throughout the whole street, pouring through shattered windows and echoing between the surrounding alleys. Captain Bryden stepped forward, weapon drawn. You wanted the attention of all of Malifaux, which? You've got it. My name is Captain Bryden. I represent the Guild Constabulary. She eyed Bryden up and down with an ugly sneer. This is who they sent. Some low-ranking cog who barely fits his uniform. I haven't heard nothing about you. I was expecting Dashiell, or someone who knows what they're doing. Frankly, I'm insulted. She spat on the ground. What do you want? He called back, undeterred, his finger still resting on the trigger of his colt. This lovely little regular of Laramie's, she said with a cackle. Bryden's pulse quickened as she pressed the barrel of her pistol to the old man's temple. It's not like he has any way to leave. I already shot his horse. The woman licked her lips and bent down, as though addressing a child, pulling her hostage's face close to hers with a sickening caress. Tell the good captain your name, honey. Don't be shy now, I won't bite you. Yet. She forced him to crawl forward on his knees, her gun still aimed at his skull. My name is Trevelyan. He wavered, quaking in fear. Charles Edward Trevelyan, Minister of Breachside Economic Affairs. I report directly to Lucius Matheson and oversee the Soulstone Registry. Please, you can't let them take me. She kicked him in the ribs with the heel of her ironclad boot. The man gasped in pain. Fortunately for you, he's the only one we're interested in. You are going to let us take him. And if you don't, my four friends inside will put bullets in the others and then kill you and everyone else in this crowd. The crowd gasped as she kicked the downed man again. Look how many people showed up to see our little performance. 
I guess curiosity really is a killer. We don't negotiate with Arcanist terrorists. Bryden responded with as much gusto as he could muster. The woman clicked her tongue impatiently. Well, now that's no matter, since you are not in a position to negotiate, Captain. Let's make this simple so that even you can understand me. I will give the order to execute the others, unless you tell your men to stand down. You know I can't do that, he said through gritted teeth. He scanned the area looking for options, but there were none. Trevelyan, his charge, was directly in front of him now. If he was to secure him, this was the only chance. I think you can. She held her fist in the air, and behind the windows, Bryden and his deputy saw four pistol hammers pulled back on the heads of four hostages. I'm going to count to three. The deputy tapped him on the shoulder again. Think about what you were doing. Trevelyan is the only one that matters. You don't remember what they trained us to do. Do I need to remind you what happened to your predecessor who couldn't follow orders? Shut up. Bryden shoved the deputy away. The witch began to count. One. He was out of time. Two. He had to make a choice. Bryden's stomach lurched. He wanted to stop her. How easy it should have been to shout, wait. But the captain knew what he had to do, what he had been trained to do. Three. In that fraction of a second, he tried to make eye contact with the four innocent people whose fates he had just sealed. But there was not enough time. It only took a moment after the sound of four gunshots for their bodies to tumble out of the shattered windows and onto the cobblestones in a spray of hair, blood and brains. Bryden's world froze as he took it all in. Two men, two women. One was old, three were young. He didn't know their names but they were all the same now. In their disbelief, both the woman and the crowd barely had time to register what had happened before Bryden shot the witch point-blank through the left eye. As the crowd began to run in all directions and guard charged the building, Bryden held the old man close. I'm sorry, he cried. There were no tears. He would not let them come. For what, my boy? You did the most sensible thing imaginable, Trevelyan said with a sigh of relief as he wiped the blood from the deep creases of his worn visage before dragging himself to his feet. But Bryden barely noticed. He had not even registered that he had embraced the minister. He was still staring at the lifeless corpses slumped on the curb, all leaking fresh blood into the cracks of the pavement like butchered meat. I will never forget that day. The captain finished. Four innocent people died. And I can't help but think that I chose poorly, even though my training reminds me that I made the right call. I'm sorry, said Trevelyan mechanically, as he stared into the depths of the arboretum. But I need you to focus right now. Be as honest, detailed, and straightforward as you can. Your answer matters a great deal to me. Couldn't you have just let them take me? No, he answered flatly. Just as Dashiell trained us. Orders are orders, sir. It had to be done for the greater good. We are trained to protect that good and all who represent it. Ah, Trevelyan said, eyes lighting up. But this is exactly what I want to know. What greater good is that by protecting me 
What are you actually protecting? He pressed, pouring a measure of the liquid and taking a swig, although he offered the trembling captain none. The glory of the guild. Bryden responded hastily, trying to think fast as the memories of that terrible evening retreated once again. Our institution cannot exist, unless the safety of our best and brightest administrators is preserved. In a game of chess, you can't protect the king without sacrificing a few pawns. That's what we were told. And God knows what they would have done to you, or what information you might have given them. That's what you were told. Trevelyan flinched, and Bryden's stomach lurched. For the first time, his interviewer seemed unimpressed. I'm not at all satisfied with that answer. The old man snapped bluntly. Your analogy is trite at best, and much narrower than it should be. I fear that you are missing the forest for the trees. What do you mean? Bryden countered nervously. Let me ask you another question, Captain. He poured himself a second glass. The Guild is the most powerful organization in this world and the next. The colonies we have helped great nations forge are everywhere from Africa to your own homeland, Paradganaraja. Not to mention that we control a brand new realm which perforates the very boundaries of human imagination. Malafoe was the greatest accomplishment of them all. He added ingratiatingly as Trevelyan paused to deliver an icy stare. I won't dispute that, the minister conceded. But you haven't heard my question. What's worth dying for? Many brave souls have fought tooth and nail with everything they had during and after the Black Powder Wars to plant our flag in once foreign soil. Robert Clive, James Wolfe, Warren Hastings, David Livingston, Henry Morton Stanley, and of course our dear Governor General, great men, all of them. But if you think they just did it for gold, sugar, ivory, tobacco, and soul stones to enrich themselves and the Guild, or even for glory, as you say, then you're short a powerful part of the equation. He scowled. The Guild doesn't need any more glory or wealth than she already has. If not wealth, then what? He was nonplussed. Oh, riches are a part of it, a huge part. He cackled. I rather like these downtown residences and could not imagine living anywhere else in this hellhole. He took another swig of the amber liquid. Never underestimate the value of scrip. But it's not the be-all and end-all. Trevelyan stood up and hobbled over to the glass door separating the sitting room from the arboretum. The minister placed his hand on the pane. The instant his skin touched the glass, the same monstrous plant Bryden saw earlier sprouted its bulbous head from the dirt and began snapping vigorously. It hobbled towards the door, probing the barrier with its feelers, as though searching for weak spots through which to attack the old man's fingers. Trevelyan chuckled to himself, moving his digits around and watching in amusement as the feelers tracked him from the other side. Without so much as glancing back at the captain, he said, You're missing an idea. Something that you cannot, contrary to popular belief, put a price on. Universal human progress. It is not enough that you sacrificed others to save me because you were just doing what you were told. I had hoped that you truly understood that in saving me, you were saving progress. But it seems I was mistaken. Perhaps you were not the man I thought you were. And what is progress?
Bryden asked, getting ready to depart. He was sure that Trevelyan was about to terminate the meeting. It was an odd feeling. The captain had saved his life, and yet it seemed like he had failed his superior in doing so. Let me tell you a story this time, Captain Bryden, he said, making proper eye contact at last. I've served the guild for a long time, and my previous stations have taught me much that I would like to share with you. Sit down. I haven't dismissed you yet, in either sense of the word. The famine was taking its toll, and the countryside around Dublin would never be the same. Everything was grey, the sky, the sea, the soil, and especially the potato leaves. Once verdant and lush, decaying farms rotted and withered away in the darkening days, shedding their scabbed foliage like the discarded skin of a great, dull serpent constricting the chilly coast. Even when everything was grey and there was no green left, the blight still came. As the fields decayed, so did the planters. Families struggled to make ends meet as much of the little food left was partitioned aside to meet the monthly quotas of their landlords. Some resorted to theft, for they didn't consider it such, only survival. But those that dared to touch the landlord stocks, rationed by guild law, were hung or shot. Emaciated and skeletal, many passed the shortening days alone in bed. They wasted away drinking a foul tea made from boiled roots for sustenance as the dull, sluggish rain hammered on their cracked window panes and a savage wind howled through gaping cracks which no one had the strength to repair. Outside one of the villages most affected by the blight, a lone man in a midnight blue trench coat and high buckled boots waded through a stinking mire that had once been the centre of a verdant farm. He stamped atop the squelching grey leaves as though they were of little consequence, tutting at the stench emanating from a rotting swine carcass in the pen next door. Free-flowing rot burst from its oozing sores, congealing with the dirt, dung and rain pouring from above to create virulent puddles of swollen pestilence. Carefully scraping the grime from his heels on a nearby rock, the man approached a nearby shack and banged on the door three times with more vigour than was necessary. It was clear that someone was home. Smoky light emanated from the ruined windows with a dull orange flicker. A young boy, perhaps no older than ten, came to the door. His face was pale and he was so gaunt that the contours of his cheekbones touched the bottom lenses of his spectacles. The child was too thin. His shirt sagged from arms that were little more than skin and bones, and his trousers exposed legs that might as well have been fleshy toothpicks. The man shrunk away in disgust, as a ragged voice echoed from the hearth. Who's at the door? The boy stood mute like a scarecrow, his beady eyes affixed to the guild seal emblazoned on one of the many medals pinned to the visitor's jacket. Good evening, sir, the guest responded into the gloom. My name is Sir Charles Edward Trevelyan. First Baronet of Great Britain and Ireland in service of His Majesty in the Guild Council of Vienna. A series of shuddering coughs and an angry shout broke his introduction short. Go away. What in the bloody hell do the rams want with us? We've given everything we have to give. Isn't it enough? Will it ever be enough? Sort off, you greedy bastard. 
the young boy retreated back to the hearth and began tinkering with a pile of rusted gears and swirling motors which littered the floor. I am an emissary of Vienna. You will address me with respect. We are not here to collect from you. We just want to help. He crossed the threshold and entered the hovel. The voice gave a wheezing, shuddering laugh. Vienna is a long way from here, baronet. Trevelyan ignored this. The baron told me that the other farmers considered you as their leader. Vienna would like to offer you aid. I'm here to discuss the terms by which it might be most effective to alleviate your present circumstances. His eyes darted from the dying hearth to the empty larder which was covered in cobwebs. At last, they settled upon a rickety bed nestled in a dark corner where a skeleton of a man sat upright, covered by a lone, ragged blanket. The voice had a body, or what was left of one. Food! We need food! The old man's eyes lit up, and his tact changed immediately. The boy by the hearth even stopped tinkering with his salvage, looking up expectantly. Shipments of grain and vegetables from Britain. Look at me, boy! He's starving, and so are the other children. No, said Trevelyan dismissively. The guild will not give handouts, but we can offer you something better. Fair pay for work for everyone in your village, so that everyone can have enough coin to sustain themselves with food that we can provide. Work! The old man gaped incredulously, his face even more gaunt and skeletal in the flickering light. Look at us! We have no strength! The man tried to stand up, but his legs buckled and he sunk back down onto the mattress. We need food. Go to every single house on the Baron's plot and you'll see. That may be true, but no one should be incentivized to seek welfare under Guild authority. He bit back bluntly. You should be inspired to seek new opportunities elsewhere that are sustainable, for your own good, and so that you are not a burden on the state. We can provide those opportunities and I am coming to you as a courtesy to ask your permission to set up a system in this hamlet where your people can work in exchange for coin. I have spoken with the Baron, and he is willing to put a hold on your monthly produce quota until a system is in place. I believe this to be more than equitable. The old man was seething. Your proposal is unreasonable. We can barely get out of bed to cook what limited food we have left so that we don't rot away. Do you expect us to perform hard labor? I did not specify the nature of the work we would like you to pursue. We have grain and corn shipments from Britain that can be ground into bread and meal for a very fair wage and little imposition. And to whom will this bread and meal go? Why, to you, of course. The old man gave another shuddering cough. You want us to make something which we merely sell back to ourselves? Go to hell. Frankly, Trevelyan noted. Your lack of vision will not deter us. We are offering you sustainable aid. And all I see is laziness and negativity. This was a courtesy visit. Guild officials will arrive tomorrow to move the necessary infrastructure in place. I was here merely to brief you. Good night. He turned tail to leave, the curses of the old man and the bawling of his child at his back. The officials came to town the next day and knocked door to door dragging all those who were able enough to grind meal into the field. Most of them were children. All were skeletal with barely more strength than their parents. Great flying machines that terrified the younger laborers deposited large sacks of grain and corn, 
before cruising away into the clouds as quickly as they had arrived. The workers unloaded the meal into a giant machine powered by a fingernail-sized stone that glowed a sinister green. Each week, the stone grew paler and paler, until a worker would collapse from exhaustion or hunger. Then the stone would grow bright green again, and the machine would continue to grind and grind and grind. Over time, every hamlet along the coast began to produce more and more bread and meal, and the blight began to fade. That same day, I was awarded with the First Order of Vienna. My superiors said that my vision of progress had saved a starving people, not only from the famine, but also from themselves. With his story concluded, Trevelyan looked at the captain. It is why I originally brought the blight with me, as a sign of that progress. Before, Bryden was impressed. Now he was horrified. The man and his boy, were they saved? Do you even know their names? Bryden asked. Are you testing me? The minister responded, his voice cloaked with amusement and just a hint of asperity as he ran the tips of his long fingers together. It began with an R, I think. He stroked his chin as though collecting thoughts. Riley, maybe. No, wait, Remus. It was something like that. He scoffed and flicked his wrist dismissively. It doesn't matter. What? But surely. He cut Bryden off with a flourish. I don't know what happened to them, but I know with complete certainty that some people had to die to buy us the time we needed to build the wage labor camps. But surely hundreds of thousands died in the time it took for those camps to be effective, Minister. How does your story tell me anything about progress? What don't I understand? Don't you see? Trevelyan said growing more and more animated by the second. Bryden shrunk back, slightly alarmed. The famine was their fault. These people, their behavior, both individually and collectively, was shockingly primitive. Trevelyan stood up now in evident excitement. I found a solution. I made the same decision you did that day at Laramie's. I could have simply given the people aid and saved a larger number of lives, but I chose progress instead. The blight gave the people incentive to work, and those labor camps created industry that endures to this very day. What else would you expect of me in dealing with an entire nation of eight million people subservient to one root in the ground? Your sympathy. Bryden interjected, dropping all pretense of pleasantry. This lecture was getting tedious now, and it was time to leave. But Trevelyan didn't seem to hear, and instead began to pace eagerly now leaving his charge no time to argue. It was so important to introduce wage labor camps to those plebeian sharecroppers. This is our burden as members of the guild. We are culturally superior, and it is the moral duty of empire to bring enlightenment to places which lack it for the benefit of universal human progress. No matter how draconic our practices seem, we ultimately bring the greatest good to the greatest number. We are a perfect system. I can't dispute that. Bryden said dryly. No, you can't. Trevelyan concluded. Think about my actions and the end game. What does any parent want for their child? A long, fulfilling life which, despite suffering from misdirection, is ultimately corrected and put on a golden path. 
by correcting their cultural inefficiencies and modernizing those savages. I did precisely that, even at the cost of lives. I suppose that's true, the captain said, looking out again at the arboretum. The mass of twisting vines within, speckled with colorful flowers and bulbs that the Phytophthora and Festons had not yet reached. But what does that have to do with my actions in saving your life? He stood up, frustrated now. How was my decision like yours? Because I thought you understood all of this and would have made the perfect captain of my retinue. I hoped that you did not get four civilians killed, simply because you were told to protect and serve your master like a common animal. Trevelyan snorted. Oh no, I had hoped that you sacrificed all those people because you intuitively understood that in preserving people like me, who understand the Guild's imperial obligation to contribute to universal progress, you ultimately benefit everyone. I felt your actions were bold, heroic, and, as I now know, I wrongly assumed, illustrative of the good that we stand for. Good. I made a decision which killed innocent civilians just as you lost hundreds of families while you wasted time. Yes, many died. But millions will become more enlightened since people like me are still alive to instruct them on how to live properly. And that greater good extends to Malifaux. Look at all of these people who lack the vision and foresight to understand that the guild and its values are superior. His pacing grew even quicker, and the old man seemed animated with a righteous sense of purpose that belied his frailty, like a puppet dancing on jerking strings. Consider the Neverborn, primitive, savage creatures which have left us no option but extermination, or those arcanist witches who mistake petty individualized liberties for progress. And what about those maddened, damned necromancers lurking in the quarantine zone who have lost their last dregs of humanity in devotion to the dark arts? The minister stopped pacing at last and looked out again into the swirling vines of the great grass menagerie. All of them are no different than the forces which required our guiding hand earthside, and we will strive to enlighten each of them for the benefit of all, in our old world and in this one. That's how guild liberalism and the Telerian doctrine works. I see. The captain could think of nothing else to say. It was time to leave. He extended his hand and Trevelyan shook it. I'm sorry that I couldn't meet your expectations, Minister. I hope that after some more time for reflection, I may one day return and assist you once again. He concluded, hoping that he did not come across as hollow as he felt. As do I, Captain. Now, if you'll please excuse me. I'll have Argus get your coat. I have business to attend to elsewhere. He turned his back and left Bryden alone in the foyer. Alone at last, Sori Bryden looked out into the crystalline labyrinth of swirling vines before him, still glinting in the pale light of dusk. Without knowing what took hold of him, he approached the glass carefully and pressed his hands against the thin panes of the arboretum door just as Trevelyan had done not an hour before. Instantly, the thick green feelers of the Phytophthora infestants shot out to meet his touch, separated only by millimeters from his pale olive skin by a thin pane. Bryden looked at the mutated potato blight, a predator slowly destroying the diversity of plants in the courtyard as it grew and changed. Motivated by its own self-interest, the captain doubted its progress would stop until all the other plants were dead. 
The rays of bloody, late-afternoon sunlight streaming through the greenhouse dome made him think of his mother. He couldn't help it. This was her favourite time of day, after all, although it was far less beautiful here than it ever was in the steps of the Kush, where he used to sit on her lap as she gazed out wearily into the distance, holding his father's hand in hers. His father. His father grew up in the enclave in Vienna, but he didn't think that his mother was primitive or that her people were servile. Bryden wasn't sure what made him do it. It was like being in a trance, staring at himself from the outside in. But he ran his fingers across the bronze bolt which kept the door to the arboretum locked. With a little click, he heard the metal cylinder slide from one end of its casing to the other, and he turned his back to leave and let progress take its course. Good night, Minister Trevelyan, the captain called, entering the vestibule a few moments later. Argus was present as promised with his coat in hand, the butler's violent scowl as prominent as ever. Good night, Trevelyan replied, taking his hand once again. I do hope that we might speak again once you have had enough time to reflect on the importance of our mission. The rules of progress still apply here in Malifaux. There are local forces that need taming, and when you are ready, we might yet make use of you, William Bryden. Actually, my name is Sori, not William, sir, he answered, and Argus shut the door with a click. He lingered alone on the stoop, deep in thought. He left about a minute later, only after he heard muffled screams. By the time the blood began to seep from underneath the front door and onto the street, the man who had once been William Bryden was already long gone. That's it for another instalment of The Weird Chronicles. Join us next time for more tales of action and adventure.